0: Financial inclusion can play a large role in advancing the 2030 Sustainable Development Goals, particularly those focused on reducing inequalities and increasing economic opportunities in least developed countries and fragile and conflict-affected states. In fact, the UN Capital Development Fund reports that digital finance alone could spur inclusive growth that would add $3.7 trillion to the GDP of emerging economies within a decade. How can we promote solutions to inequality and contribute to financial inclusion through trade, both in the public sector and the private sector? Join us as we discuss this and more on Trade for Peace. Welcome to Trade for Peace, brought to you by the WTO's Trade for Peace program. I am Axel Addy, former chief negotiator of Liberia's accession to the WTO and founding member of the Trade for Peace program. Trade for Peace is a 30-minute podcast in conversation with Trade for Peace champions, global policymakers, entrepreneurs, and innovators committed to promoting trade as a key ingredient for lasting peace. Join us in our bi-monthly podcast as we discuss how trade is contributing to sustainable peace in fragile and conflict-affected countries. Welcome to Trade for Peace. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 3 on Financial Inclusion for Sustainable Peace. As you all know, access to financial services has always been a critical factor in the global development agenda often highlighted as a featured target in eight of the 17 UN Sustainable Development Goals. However, the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic make financial inclusion even more important to our current reality. Those who suffered the most from the economic fallouts of the pandemic are also those with poor access to financial services, including payment and credit services. So what is being done to mitigate the negative impacts on the most vulnerable population? What is in the pipeline? Discussing this topic and more, I am honored to have with us Ambassador Michael Froman, who brings a wealth of experience from both the public and the private sector. Ambassador Froman is no stranger to the trade community, having served as a U.S. trade representative and principal advisor and negotiator on international trade and investment issues under the Obama administration. He is currently the vice chairman and president for strategic growth at MasterCard. Mike, welcome to Trade for Peace. Well, thanks very much for having me. It's good to see you. Good to connect with you, Mike. Now, I would like us to start with your career. You've had quite an amazing career working in the highest level of decision making, both in the public sector and the private sector. But one thing that stands out and is very consistent throughout your career is that you remain committed to service above self. So tell us, how did it all get started? What energizes you today to get out of bed?
1: Well, look, I've been very fortunate over the course of my career to have the opportunities that I did. And I knew early on I wanted to go into government. It's a public service. I did that out of graduate school. And I intended to go in for a couple of years. I was a lawyer. I thought I'd go in for a couple of years, practice law for a couple of years, and become a law professor. But a couple of years turned into seven years. And I never quite turned back, and I ended up going from government to the private sector and then back into government. And what I found, even in the private sector, both in between the Clinton and the Obama administrations, and then since the Obama administration, is that I've gravitated towards opportunities where I could try and bring the assets of the private sector to the table to have an impact on public issues. On issues that were important to governments and NGOs and international organizations, and to me, that's been that's what gets me up in the morning is uh, trying to successfully bring the assets, the capabilities, the expertise of the private sector to the table in partnership with the public sector and the NGO sector to try and solve major social and economic challenges. And Mastercard has been a great place to do that.
0: And now you have a new role uh, as the vice chairman and president for strategic growth at MasterCard. What is that all about? And what is the center doing in terms of tackling the challenges of financial inclusion?
1: So it's a great role, I have to say. I think I have the best job in the private sector because I have on one end of the spectrum, purely commercial businesses that work with governments to try and address their challenges. And so including financial inclusion and to do so on a commercially sustainable basis. And at the other end of the spectrum, I have responsibility for the Center for Inclusive Growth, our think tank, our thought leadership platform, our philanthropy, the MasterCard Impact Fund, our work on ESG and sustainability. And so it really brings together the whole spectrum of capabilities that MasterCard has from its products, its services, technology, expertise, network, people, and brings it to the table. The common element is partnering with The governments, international organizations, and NGOs to try and help them address the challenges they face.
0: And I see you've partnered with several governments in terms of supporting entrepreneurial innovations across Africa. Can you give some examples in terms of some of your programs?
1: Sure. Well, first of all, the whole area of financial inclusion is something we've been at for more than a decade, long before I got to MasterCard. And a lot of the work actually originated in Africa and then spread to the rest of the world and spread back to the United States and Western Europe. But we did some of the innovation on the ground in Africa. For example, in Nairobi, together with the Gates Foundation, we set up a financial inclusion lab, and that has continued to develop products that are particularly well-suited for financial inclusion in developing markets. We've worked across the continent historically to both bring individuals into the financial system, but also to reach micro and small businesses and make sure that they could have access to financial services. For example, we've partnered with Unilever and a bank in Kenya to digitize the relationship between a micromerchant and their Unilever supplier and so that the local bank could see those transactions and extend credit for the first time to micromerchants who before had been invisible to them because everything had been done in cash. And that has really taken off. And now we've taken that kind of platform to other countries' around the world to look at the whole issue of supply chain finance and how it helps small businesses grow. Right now, we're very much focused on a platform we call Community Pass, which allows for a very well-protected digital identity that the individual controls on his or her phone or his or her card, that it allows them to get access to healthcare services and create electronic medical records. It allows them to get access to capital if they're a small business, it allows them to do transactions, even digital transactions in places that may be offline where there's no electricity, there's no connectivity. We have found a way of digitizing those kinds of transactions. and we find more and more use cases as we experiment around the continent for helping the base of the pyramid enter the digital economy. Again, whether they're a parent taking their child in for a vaccination, are a micro-merchant owner or a farmer or a refugee to get that access to the digital economy, which we believe is the pathway towards greater productivity and greater prosperity, particularly given, as you said in your introduction, some of the recent developments during COVID with the advent and the acceleration of the digitization of the economy.
0: Absolutely. And all of these are the end product of trade liberalization. The more open economies are, to explore new opportunities and new partnerships. There are more opportunities to create for micro-enterprises to grow and innovate and really meet some dire challenges, particularly in fragile and conflict-affected countries. But you and I know that the critics of trade liberalization often argue that while trade opening has its benefits, it can also lead to high inequality gaps that can impact peace and security, often in fragile economies. How is the work you are currently doing on financial inclusion addressing the bigger picture around trade liberalization? Well, I think we start from the premise that inclusion
1: is ultimately what's most important, that whether it's for economic development, you can't afford to leave out vast parts of a population. And as economies become more and more digitized, the importance of individuals and micro and small businesses becoming connected to the digital economy and gaining the benefits of the digital economy becomes all the more important. We don't want to see a new digital divide created between those who are participating in the digital economy and those who are not. Now I can't say that you know financial inclusion is going to prevent wars. What I can say is that economies that are more inclusive tend to grow faster, tend to be more stable, tend to see the benefits of economic growth be more broadly shared. And that's got to be better for the stability of countries, for bringing in marginalized communities so that they don't feel alienated from what's going on, for reducing some of the impetus for mass migration and for conflict. And therefore, in our own small way, we're trying to make sure that we're giving people that entry point, that pathway towards greater prosperity. And we believe that digital inclusion, financial inclusion is a key part of that. You know, I think in terms of your point about trade liberalization, it requires countries to be open enough to allow entities to innovate, to bring innovation into the country, to partner with local parties, whether it's the telecom companies or the local banks, the local fintech community to support the evolution and the growth of the fintech community so that there's more homegrown innovation being done in the markets and to continue to work and make sure that this can be done in a safe and secure manner. One of the things that's happened is more and more activities moved from the analog world to the digital world is that people have also become more vulnerable to cyber attacks, to fraud that may be occurring in the cyber realm. And one thing we want to make sure is that as people are included in the digital economy, they can continue to interact with a trust network in a way that allows them to engage safely and securely. And that requires openness. You know, just to give you an example, Axel, we see transactions happening all over the world through our network. It allows us to spot patterns of fraud. Mm. So that when we see the same kind of fraud being perpetuated in Nigeria, the Philippines, and Poland, we can warn the banks, we can warn the central banks, we can help them deal with it, we can stop the fraud. And that has saved countries tens of billions of dollars. That's only made possible because data can flow across borders. If mm. every country has a national cloud, If every country localizes their data and doesn't allow it to be analyzed with data from other countries, it makes those sorts of insights and that sort of protection all the more difficult to achieve. And that's where trade liberalization and a lot of the work being done, digital economy issues really comes into play.
0: And as you know, with the AFCFTA coming into force, and you've worked on lots of trade agreements, good ones, (laughs) difficult ones, (laughs) bad ones. What would be your ultimate advice to countries that are ratifying the AFCFTA and how do they make it a living document? How do they implement the protocols for transformation to drive financial inclusion in the digital economy and data flow across borders?
1: Well, first of all, I think we need to take a step back and just recognize what a terrific achievement the AFCTA was to bring to conclusion. It's something that's been talked about for many, many years. Okay. It's a vast continent with countries that are very different from one another and different levels of development. And I take off my hat and give kudos to all those involved who really got this done. You know, there are some long lead times in terms of transition times for implementation. And I think the key is for countries to remain focused on doing what they need to do to meet those deadlines or accelerate those deadlines to implement the obligations of the agreement and to address the domestic issues that need to be addressed to ensure that their countries can fully benefit from trade liberalization one of the lessons we all take from globalization over the last several decades everywhere in the world is that the countries where it has worked best have been those countries that as they've opened up have also recognized that they need to take domestic policy actions to support those who could otherwise be adversely affected and where we have not done that enough the support for trade liberalization has declined. And so this agreement gives countries the time and space to do that, to make sure they're building up their domestic social safety net, the kinds of programs that need to be built to help train their population to take full advantage of the openness that will come and the opportunities that creates to export products and services to other countries. And that's, I think, would be my advice. But my first An overwhelming observation about the agreement is that it's just terrific that it got done. And that at a time when in other parts of the world, countries were pulling back from globalization, pulling back from integration, this was an example of countries coming together to further their integration. And they are now, I think, at the leading edge of doing that.
0: When I served in government, one of the most difficult challenges we had just with the experience of the ECOWAS Common External Tariff was... The move to harmonize our tariff in alliance with the community tariffs and the revenue loss implications. That was a very hard sell to get the Ministry of Finance to agree on a migration plan. And I think oftentimes smaller economies in terms of how they ratify the AFCFT, will have to face this challenge of what are the implications to their budget, especially during a pandemic situation that is really hitting these economies uh, very hard. What advice as an experienced trade <laughs> negotiator would you give to negotiators that are currently going through that process to uh, ratify the EFTFTA?
1: Well, actually, it relates back to your earlier question because when we look historically, as countries develop, they become less and less reliant on tariffs as the sources of government revenue. But that means they need to develop other domestic sources of tax revenue. And digitization yeah. can help reduce corruption, can help make visible what had previously become invisible, and can help potentially broaden the tax base. And so that you have other sources of revenue other than relying just on tariffs. And my hope would be that as countries digitize, and we see a number of countries during COVID, we ended up working with about 100 governments around the world to help them digitize COVID payments to individuals or loans to small businesses or pensions, as governments become increasingly digital in their approach to their citizens, then I would hope that is also the foundation for broadening the tax base and becoming less reliant on tariffs as
0: the main source of tax revenue. Thank you, Mike. Now, I would like us to talk a little bit about the multilateral trading system, your favorite project, the WTO reforms, and especially when it comes to development and LDCs that are current members of the WTO, or those are exceeding. Uh-huh. So most of the population in LDCs, 450 million people are living in extreme poverty with major challenges and that have been hit even harder with the pandemic. And as someone who's been focusing, who's been promoting financial inclusion, do you believe that there is a space within the WTO framework to mainstream financial inclusion as a component of an existing work program, as a means to really assist fragile and conflict-affected countries, least developed countries, to driving transformation that is inclusive, that is leading to new innovations and some of the innovations you've talked about?
1: I do. I think to take one step back, for the WTO to maintain relevance going forward, I think, one, it needs to deal with issues around the digital economy. It is an increasingly important part of economies all over the world. And it's not about big digital players. An increasing share of manufacturing, as an example, relies on digitization, relies on data. A car is now basically a computer on wheels. Absolutely. So it's three, 3 million code, <laughs> you know, and four rubber wheels. You know, aircraft, as they fly around the world, send data to data centers to indicate what's going on with their engines, what needs maintenance, what needs repair. And so the line between manufacturing and services and data, I think, is all becoming quite permeable. And the WTO is traditionally focused on goods and to a lesser extent services. And I think going forward, putting greater emphasis on services and in support of that, putting greater emphasis on the rules of the road around the digital economy would help make the WTO even more relevant in the future. And I think that is important for all the countries, because whether you are the home of a great digital giant or you're really working to... Make sure there's connectivity in your country, that your schools have access to broadband, that your villages can get access to the internet, where to take mobile technology going forward. These are all things that there are some common elements that could be addressed through the trading system. And in my view, that nexus between doing more on services and doing more on the digital economy, the nexus of that is financial inclusion, because it's those two worlds coming together, and saying, if we get the rules right around services, if we get the rules right around the digital economy, data flows, localization, et cetera, then it will create the possibility for more inclusion for financial services, for education, for health, all the things that people can benefit from in the digital economy. And that can be very important. You now, I mentioned the work that the World Economic Forum is doing with the Edison Alliance, which is a group of companies and government officials, nonprofit organizations that have come together to say, how do we achieve digital inclusion? And then make sure those rules are applied. We've chosen three sectors initially, financial inclusion, healthcare, and education. Make sure we're doing digital inclusion with those three ideas in mind so that we can benefit populations all over the world. There's a lot of good work to be
0: done in that regard. Absolutely. Now, Mike, I would like us to switch to our new segment called Rapid Fire by popular demand. You know, <laughs> trade discussions are quite technical and very serious, that we should try to lighten it up a little bit with something different. And so we've got some recommendations that Rapid Fire is to have the vote. So you have 10 seconds to respond to five questions. And I promise it's nothing out of, okay. out, of out in the field. So are you I'm ready? ready. Okay. Are you a burger or a pizza guy? Burger
1: burger. It's all about yeah. keto.
0: Yeah. <laughs> what book would you recommend? Well,
1: I would recommend Ridgeline by Michael Punk, the former U.S. Ambassador to the WTO. Not ah, that yes. the ambassadors the WTO write great books about history
0: in the Wild West of the United States, and he is one of them. It's a great book. Definitely check it out. I remember the previous book. There was a movie made out of it. Exactly. exactly. Yes, it's yes, yes. Later. <laughs> Fantastic. And the Washington football team or the Washington Commanders? (laughs) Well, I'm gonna say I I prefer soccer to
1: football, and particularly the soccer of my 11-year-old daughter and her friends. They put a
0: a lot of heart into it. Absolutely, fantastic. And your favorite part of your job? I love bringing together
1: people from the public and the private sector to work on problems together. And they each have their own perspective. There's a lot of co-creation that goes on. I think the impact
0: is even greater when you can have both at the table. Indeed. One thing you would like to see happening in 2022? Well, I'd like to see
1: more peace and prosperity given what's going on right now. Uh, Let's get out of COVID. Let's get everyone back on track towards growth, particularly in the developing countries which have seen backsliding of some of the progress made over the last couple of decades. And let's step back from the brink of war
0: wherever possible. Fingers crossed. We'll all get along. (laughs) Well, Mike, thank you very much for this enriching conversation. And I always like to end the podcast with the last short question. In one word, what does trade for peace mean to you and why? I'd
1: say in one word, not surprisingly, it would be inclusion. Because I think so many of the challenges to peace come from people, communities feeling excluded. And if we can find ways of including them uh, with regard to the economy, I think we have a greater chance of achieving peace and trade,
0: trade's contribution to peace. You heard it here, inclusion. That was Ambassador Michael Froman, former U.S. trade representative and vice chairman and president for strategic growth at MasterCard. Mike, thank you for joining us today on Trade for Peace. All right, so Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. You have been listening to Trade for Peace, brought to you by the WTO's Trade for Peace program. You can be a part of the conversation by sharing your stories and your suggestions with us at tradeforpeace at wto.org. And you can also follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn at Trade for Peace. Be sure to tune in every other week for new episodes. Thank you for listening to Trade for Peace.